0: said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. We often say, uh, you are what you eat, right? We are what we eat. We, We know that What we eat determines the health and vitality of our our body. We know that what I put in my mouth is going to determine the health, the vitality, the strength of my entire body. Eight years ago this this month, we came to the United States to live after many years in Latin America. And I began to enjoy, maybe like never before, I, I began to connect with some foods Connect with some foods that I had not had access to in our years in Latin America. And, and so lunchtime became a very special time for me with a couple of slices of Oscar Mayer bologna on thick white bread and, and the, the Lay's barbecue potato chips in those black bags, right? And then the, the, the chips, ahoy, double chunk chocolate cookies. I, I, yeah, I mean, if you have not lived outside the United States, you would not know that the cookie aisles and the supermarkets here are a thing to behold. So after a couple of years here, I began to notice that I had a, a little spot here, a little mass in my chest that was sore and tender. I went to the doctor. He sent me to have some tests. We spent some of our money, spent some of the insurance company's money. And uh, the good news was that it was benign, but it was also annoying. And nobody knew how to get rid of this annoying, painful little lump until I went to speak with a trusted doctor friend. And he looked at it, and he looked at the test results. And then he looked at me, and he said, Jim, have you ever considered losing some weight? <laughs> oh, ouch, ouch. So then what? Yeah. No more Oscar Mayer bologna sandwiches. Only limited quantities of Lay's barbecued potato chips and adios chips ahoy. Yeah. (laughs) And in just a couple of months, that little mass disappeared. So why am I telling you this pitiful story about bologna sandwiches? There really is a point here. And the point is this. As is our body, is our soul. What you feed your soul will determine the health and vitality of your life. What you feed your soul will determine the health and vitality of your spiritual life, your emotional life, your relational life, even your vocational life, your physical life as well. And believe me with this, what you feed your soul will actually determine the legacy that you leave on this earth. So what are you feeding your soul? What are you feeding your soul? Please turn with me to Psalm 131. This is the third Psalm of Ascent that we have studied. And Jared has given us two terrific messages on Psalm 122 and last week Psalm 127. If you missed those, go find them on our website because you need to hear what, what Jared said. Uh, There are 15 Psalms of Ascent. Four of them, we believe, were written by David, including this one, Psalm 131. So it says, A Psalm of Ascent of David. And it will be up here on the screen for you. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O oh, Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. This is a sung prayer of just 65 words. That's all. And as the nation of Israel, as Jared explained, was going up to Jerusalem to to worship, they had to deal with the health of their soul. How healthy is my soul? What am I feeding my soul? Now, some of you who are listening to me this morning might think, you know, I don't spend that much time thinking about my soul and what I'm feeding my soul. But actually, you spend a lot more time thinking about your soul than you know. If you check out a theology book or a Bible dictionary, it's going to say that the soul is the immaterial part of you compared with the physical part of you. But I think that's a pretty cold definition. The the soul is really your inner person. It's the true you. Your soul is your true inner person. And for that reason, often the Bible uses the word soul and life interchangeably. In fact, last week, Jared mentioned a passage in which Jesus said, whoever wants to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for me will find it. And that verse goes on to say, for what does it profit a man, and you can say it with me, to gain the whole world if he forfeits his... Soul And the word life and soul is interchangeable. In fact, it's the very same word in Greek. A definition that, that I like, that I think is a, maybe the best biblical explanation of soul that I've seen, says this. Our soul is like an inner stream of flowing water. Think about that. An inner stream of flowing water that gives strength, direction, and harmony to every other element of our life. When that stream, our soul, is as it should be, We are constantly refreshed in all that we do. Think about Psalm 103 in your inner person. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Let all that is within me bless his holy name. And your soul and my soul is full of hungers and longings and desires and sorrows and fears and many other things. Let me read a few verses from the Psalms, because the Psalms are the soul book of the Bible. Psalm 107.9 says this, For the Lord satisfies the longing soul. Is your soul longing this morning? The hungry soul he fills with good things. Psalm 63.1, written by David as he fled from his own son. O oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. Psalm 119, 28, my soul melts for sorrow. Do you have sorrow this morning? Strengthen me according to, to your word, O Lord. Psalm 25, 1, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. The inner you, the inner me is full of hungers and longings and thirstings and sorrow and fear of shame. And, and, and even though our desires may be distorted, here's the good news this morning. The longings of your soul, even though they may be distorted by sin and rebellion, the longings of your soul are a reflection of the deep longing that you and I have to have the life that God longs to give you in Christ himself. Our longing reflects the longing for the life that God longs to give us. So let's dive into Psalm 131 here. We're going to look at Psalm 131 as three prayers. It's a a sung prayer, so there's three, uh, it's a song of three prayers. And I'm going to put the prayers and put them up here uh, in our own words. So here's prayer number one. Oh God, kill my hunger for exalting myself. Seriously. Oh God, kill that hunger in me to make myself supreme. Kill that hunger in me to make my longings and my desires and my goals and my way supreme. Look at verse number one again. Oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up in self exaltation, my eyes are not raised too high with that haughty look that God hates in Proverbs 6. And as David writes this, he's not bragging about how humble he is. This is a prayer. David is saying, "O Lord, let not my soul be eaten up with self. Let me just mention one, one thing to you about Hebrew poetry, since we'll have two more psalms after this one. Many times in Hebrew poetic books like the psalms, the second line echoes the first line. So in English, we rhyme words like praise, days, maze. But... The Hebrew poets rhymed ideas. So there's a second line that has the same word picture as the first. So the word picture here is my heart is not, well, my heart is raised up. My eyes are lifted high. It's the same idea, same word picture about a life in which self is supreme. And we think, well, I'm not not like that. Okay, maybe a little bit. Let's talk about four ways in which sometimes we are more like that than we would like to think. So number one, criticism. Criticism. I lift up my heart and I raise up my eyes and I know. I know who should do what and when they should do it and how they should do it. I have the correct analysis. I have the solution if people would just listen to me. Uh, Catherine Marshall was a Christian writer. I imagine there's some people here who read her novel Christie. She also wrote a, a book about her husband, Peter Marshall, called A Man Called Peter, about her husband's ministry as a chaplain in the U.S. Senate. And Catherine Marshall talks about this this time in her life when God spoke to her about a critical spirit, and God gave her assignment, and her assignment was this. Fast for an entire day from criticism. Go a whole day, an entire day, fasting from criticism. Do not say anything critical about anybody. And she says that as the morning wore on, I felt a void in my soul. (laughs) And as she sat down to eat lunch with her husband... Her mother and her adult son, they were talking about lots of interesting subjects on which she had some very different, definite opinions. But she says, I kept silent and I noticed that my comments were not missed. (laughs) Apparently, apparently the federal government, the U.S. judicial judicial system and the institutional church could survive without my penetrating observations. So a critical spirit is a warning sign to my soul that I'm lifting up my heart, I'm raising my eyes too high. Second, besides criticism, complaining. When I complain that I deserve more than I'm getting, I deserve better treatment, I deserve a a, a, a better deal, more appreciation, more admiration, I'm not getting what I deserve. When that's in our soul, our soul probably needs to go on a diet. Uh, complaining, complaining is delicious, but it will make your soul sick. Like eating a whole bag of Chips Ahoy at one sitting. Number three, criticism, complaining. Number three, competing, competing. I'm not talking here about competing in sports and in games and in, in, uh, um, Tennis, golf, uh, volleyball, foursquare, skippo, all those. That's that's fine to compete in those things. We're talking about the secret competing that goes on in your soul. That competing that looks at at somebody else and just hungers to have a, a more beautiful home. A cooler car. To be more popular. Be more important. To have a more prestigious job. To have cuter kids. The operative word is more, more than him, more than her. It's myself just filled with more self. And that can happen even when we think we're serving God. I remember one time Jenny and I were having a a discussion about how much time for work and how much time for family uh, work being, in my case, the ministry at the seminary. So how much time for work? How much time for... Fa- Don't look at me like you haven't had those conversations. Okay. And, and Jenny was trying to let me know in a, in a kind way that I was living without any margin at all. I was just going from one thing to another. Even time that was for her and for family was just kind of penciled in there. And so I proposed a solution. And, and, and looking back, I can't believe I said this. But I really, yeah, I really did say this. So I said, okay, more margin. Here's what we'll do. If the invitation for, the, for me to go and represent the seminary, if the invitation to go to a church is, is strategic, then I will do it. And if it is not strategic, then I will say no. So strategic invitations, yes. If it's not strategic, No. So after several months had gone by, uh, she said to me very kindly, it seems like all the invitations you get are strategic. <laughs> yeah, busted, busted right in the middle of my baloney sandwich of self-importance. And they were strategic invitations, strategic for my ego, for my ego. And that is the point in which the second part of verse 1 began to hit home in in my own life. Look at that. It says, Lord," Again, it's a prayer. I I do not, I, I will not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. And when we occupy ourselves with all these things that make me feel great and marvelous, we hurt our soul. And not only that, we hurt the heart of those we love the most. Let me be clear about something that Jared mentioned last Sunday. God here is not condemning excellence. Uh, Verse 1 does not encourage us to be slipshod, to be mediocre. When you do things with excellence, God is glorified. Because God is excellent in everything that he does. Excellence glorifies God. But we're talking here, I'm talking about drivenness. Drivenness is about self. Excellence glorifies God. Drivenness... Glorifies me. It's about self, and I still, to this day, I struggle with drivenness. And sometimes I can't tell the difference between excellence and drivenness. And I need to pray, Lord, lead me out of the drivenness, show me, lead me into your excellence and the peace that that brings. And and, and maybe you need to take some time to pray if you're competing. And ask, ask God some hard, hard questions. Lord, am I competing? And if I am, with whom am I competing? And what am I competing in? One more seat. Criticism, complaining, competing, and complacency. Complacency. So we lift up our, our heart. We raise up our eyes. We see all the great and marvelous things that I'm doing. And we say... I am good to go. So if you want to keep your place in Psalm 131, you can turn to Deuteronomy 8:11, and I think we'll have it on the screen for you as well. Deuteronomy 8:11. And Moses says to the people as they prepare to enter the land, "Take care lest you forget." The Lord your God, by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up. Same phrase, same word as in Psalm 131. And you forget... The Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And please pay attention here to to these radical redemption words. Who brought you out of the house of slavery. Who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and its scorpions. Its thirsty ground where there was no water. Who brought you water out of the flinty rock. Who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know that he might humble you and test you. To do you good in the end that you might learn to feed on Him. This is radical redemption. Terrifying wilderness. Fiery serpents, scorpions, thirsty ground, flinty rock, no food anywhere. And so do I I say to myself today, Lord, I still need that radical redemption in my life? Or do I say, I am good and Jesus warned the church in Laodicea in Revelation 3, 17. He said, You say that I am rich, I prospered, and I have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. This is not fun to face sometimes what we feed our soul. All the self that we feed on. But there's good news. And one of the things I love about the Bible is that it's always full of surprises. And after verse 1, I would have expected verse 2 to say something like, you know what? You need to be more humble. <laughs> stop exalting yourself. Stop with all the, the, the criticizing and the complaining and the competing and the complacent. How does that work for you when we just tell ourselves to, to stop it? it doesn't work. At least it doesn't work for me. And there's a reason why it doesn't work. And the reason is this, is that your soul still has hungers and longings. And so the solution is not to starve your soul. The solution is to feed your soul with God's abundance instead of self. And that's the second prayer. Oh, God, satisfy my hunger with your abundance. You know, O Lord, my deepest longing, my greatest need, satisfy my hunger with your abundance. Look at verse 2. David says, but, in contrast to verse 1, but I have come. And quiet in my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. Some of your uh, translations might say uh, like a, a, a nursing child, but the idea is the same. A weaned child, a nursing child, satisfied, quiet, and calm because of the nourishment that comes from mom and mom's love. The child is calm. They can feed on the abundance that that, that mom gives. And David is saying here, I've learned to. Quiet and to to calm and quiet my soul with the abundance that God gives to me. Because even as the king, that doesn't satisfy. I don't have to suppress my hunger. I can actually satisfy it with the abundance that God gives. Let me go back for just a moment to Catherine Marshall. So as the morning wore on and she felt this void in, in her soul. But the afternoon was different, she said. And she had a breakthrough with God's creativity in the way she was praying for her son. And she had a breakthrough in creativity with ideas for her writing projects. And she says this. My criticisms had not corrected a single one of the multitudinous things I found fault with. What it had done was to stifle my own creativity in prayer, relationships, and in writing. It stifled the things God Wanted to give me. I hope when we come here. On a morning like this. It's it's not about singing. About a Bible message. It's about satisfying our soul. With God's deep abundance. With the beauty. Of the Lord's holiness. The beauty of his righteousness. The wonder of his mercy. And his comfort. And when we come here, sometimes our soul is sick with sin, sick of our sin and our failures. And God feeds us with forgiveness and cleansing. And we feel weak. And God feeds us with provision and strength and, wis- and, and wisdom and, and guidance. And the constant refrain, the gospel of the, the Old Testament is, The Lord, the Lord, compassionate and greatness. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness to those who fear him. And and the Bible is just loaded. And you know this. The Bible is loaded with metaphors of eating and drinking and the abundance that God gives. Let me just read a couple of examples. Isaiah 55, 1. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Psalm 36, 7, how precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. You You give them to drink from the rivers of your delights. And one more, Psalm 81, God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. I would feed you with the finest of wheat and with honey from a rock I would satisfy you. I love that. Do rocks have honey in them? Not that I know of. They do for God. If you're surrounded by rocks this morning, just rocks and rocks and more rocks, God will take honey from a rock and satisfy you. I think one of the most important ways that we... Feed on God's abundance is through his word because we meditate on his word and we we commune with him. In fact, Psalm 19 says that God's word is sweeter also than the honey, sweeter than the drippings of the honeycomb, the sweetest part of the honey. We're going to put up a photo here of a young lady who I think is is pretty impressive. There she is. Her name is Caroline Campbell. She's 28 years old. She lives in Port Royal, South Carolina. And Caroline Campbell wrote out the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation by hand. Every single She started in January of 2012. She finished last month 43 binders. You can see the binders behind her. 43 binders, 10,493 sheets of paper. Do you think Caroline knows something about how to quiet and calm her spirit, her soul with the abundance of God? We think I don't have time for that. Philip Melanchthon was Martin Luther's right-hand man. He was a busy man. Philip Melanchthon was basically running the Protestant Reformation for for Martin Luther. Philip Melanchthon wrote out by hand the book of Romans twice. And someone said, why did you do that? Because Philip Melanchthon was the number one gold medal Greek scholar of his day. Why did you do that? And Melanchthon said, I did it to make it my own. Maybe we could write out one or two of the Psalms of a sin or another passage, to just begin to calm and quiet our soul and feed it with all the abundance that God gives. Before we go to verse, verse 3, don't miss this about verse 2. This is the only way for you to be the true you. The only way for you to live out That inner person, the true you, the total you, is by feeding your soul with God's abundance. Because when I'm feeding my soul with all my great and marvelous things, my soul gets overtaxed. There is no room, there is no margin for me to receive the true me, to receive true abundance from the true God. Because I'm too busy competing and fighting for my greatness, the true me is lost. So that brings us to prayer number three. Oh, God, nourish my soul today with your greatness. Nourish my soul with the hope of your greatness, with hope in the great things that you will do. Look at verse three. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. David, at this point in the psalm, switches from the first person in verses one and two. To move to the plural us in verse 3, David was a very accomplished, successful man. He was the king of Israel. He was the commander-in-chief. He was a poet. He was a musician. Uh, He was the buck buck stops here guy, the, the big cheese. But David did not, for a moment, dare to put his hope in all the great things that he could do as a king. He says, O Israel, hope in the Lord, not in your king. O Park Springs Bible Church, put your hope, hope in the Lord Jesus Christ and not in the perfections of this church because we are limited. As a group of elders, we're reading a, a book called LEAD, about how to live out the gospel uh, in our community of of elders. And and we were confronted by one of the chapters. It's called LIMITS. And it talks about uh, there are four limits that all of us have. We are limited in gifts. We need the spiritual gifts of each other to thrive. Second, we're limited in time. None of us has enough time. We need wisdom. We need to pray about our priorities. Third, energy. Anybody feel limited in energy? Mm -hmm. We need to help each other practice Sabbath rest. And fourth, we are limited in our spiritual maturity. Paul Tripp says we are right smack in the middle of our own sanctification. So welcome this morning to Church Limited. (laughs) Limited by God. And I'm convinced that, that hoping in the Lord is a group project. We, we all hope for change. Don't you hope for change? We hope for better finances. We hope for a better job. We, we, we hope for deeper love in our marriage. Or we hope to be married. We hope for miracles for our, our kids. We hope for strength and, and health. We, we hope for success in, in life. We, we hope and we pray and that's a good thing. But you know, when nothing ever changes and nothing seems to work, then my puny hope just falters and we need to help each other hope well. There's a lot of ways to help each other hope well. I'm going to close the message this morning talking about two. Two, in two ways that we don't think about very much. So number one, to help each other hope well, we need to help each other repent, repent of hurry. The most telltale sign that we are not hoping in God is hurry. When you are hurrying, You are not hoping in God. When you are hoping in God's greatness, you do not need to hurry. Jesus had more to do than any of us in this room. Jesus was busy, but Jesus never hurried. A Japanese theologian named uh, Kosuke Koyama wrote something that I love. He said this, God moves at a walking pace. He is a three-mile-an-hour God. God walks slowly because God is love. If God were not love, he would go faster. Love has its own speed. It's a different kind of speed from technological speed to which we are accustomed. It is a slow speed. Yet it is Lord over all the other speeds because it is the speed of love. Are you walking at the speed of love? Maybe some of us are... are, going over the speed limit on hope. What would it be like for you this week to walk at the speed of love with the Lord Jesus and so that the true you could know His truest love for you, the fullness of His love for you? What would it be like this week for the true you to walk at the speed of love, not the hurried you, the true you, to be able to share the love of Christ, the kindness of Christ with others? When I was in the middle of writing this, right in the middle of writing these very words, my phone beeped. Apple News had a news flash for me, and I'm not making this up. It said, burnout is sweeping the nation. I mean, yeah, even Apple News seems to know about this. Second thing, to help each other hope, hope well. We need to help each other remember the difference between success and fruit. Success and fruit. Success is what I do to build my legacy. Fruit is what Jesus Christ does in and through me to build his legacy. We all want to build a legacy. So I want to give you this morning bad news, very bad news, and I think very good news about legacy. So bad news first. Is that okay? Bad news. Okay, let me explain the bad news this way. Um, all of us have eight great-grandparents. Okay? Okay? Uh, You can do the math. The math is pretty simple on this one. You have eight great-grandparents. How many of you can remember the names of all eight of your great-grandparents? Okay, some can. Oh, yes. Hi hi there. (laughs) All eight. Okay. How many could do at least six? A few more. Okay. How about this? How many of those who raise your hand, which were not very many, how many can say something about the great things that each great grandparent did? Can you say, speak for at least one minute? Just one minute. That's all about the great things that that great grandfather or that great grandmother did. Who could speak for a minute about the great, each, each grandparent, about all eight, who could speak for a minute? Only one person. Okay. You know what this means? It means that in just three generations in your own family, your greatness is gone. Your greatness is gone. You are forgotten. We could say you're history. No, it's not that you're history. We're not even history because nobody remembers us. They're spending your money. Yes, they are doing that, but they don't remember you, the ingrates. But let's look at Psalm 15, sixteen. Uh, I'm sorry, John fifteen sixteen here. Because here's Jesus Christ's legacy. He says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Let that sink in. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. And that your fruit should abide. There's legacy that your fruit should abide. So whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Jesus is saying, you didn't choose me. I chose you. And I chose you that you would go and that your fruit would abide and that you would have a legacy. And this legacy is so important to my Father that he will give it to you. If you ask him, he'll give it to you. Changed lives. Change lives. Generation after generation after generation. That's fruit. Success. The legacy of my personal success, gone in three generations. I hope you have success. But the legacy of our success is gone in three generations. But lives changed by Jesus Christ, changed lives for Jesus Christ. They bear fruit in generation after generation after generation after generation until Jesus comes in all the fullness of his kingdom. And what you feed your soul will determine your legacy. The legacy that you leave will depend on feeding your soul with the abundant abundance of God in the person of Christ himself who says to all of us this morning, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him. And he or she with me, I will feed your soul with my life and you will have a legacy. And I know this morning that some of you might be thinking, my soul is worn out. I, 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 can't, I can't even connect with this legacy stuff. My soul is sorrowful, burdened. My soul is crushed. Do you feel that way? God says, that's okay. Rest. Let your soul rest in Him. Let your soul be still. Let your soul be quiet. Let your soul feed from His abundance. And let me encourage you as we close with these words from the hymn Be Still My Soul Be still my soul thy God does undertake to guide the future as he has the past thy hope thy confidence let nothing shake all now mysterious shall be bright at last be still my soul the wind and waves still know his voice who ruled them while he dwelt below and we'll sing this hymn is our prayer this morning.